Father, we ask that you would open your word to us. Lord, you would open your will to us. And that, Jesus, you would show us your way. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Christ, my rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've brought your Bibles this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them uh, to uh, Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, that's page 872 in the Pew Bible uh, that's in front of you. Um, that's our te- or the text I'm preaching from this morning. So, again, Luke 13, page 872, because you're going to need that to follow along. Now, while you're turning there, um, you know, I really can, uh, in preparation for this sermon, I-, I really couldn't think of no other word that's probably more offensive to our present culture today than the word judgment. I hear people say things like this all the time. I feel judged. Or they say, quote, uh, it used to be John 3.16, but now the most popular verse I believe in the Bible is, judge not lest ye be judged. Or people come out with this statement, you're so judgmental, or that person is so judgmental. And so if the word judgment kind of offends you or rubs you the wrong way this morning, I have some good news for you today because in Luke 13, 1 to 9, we discover the grace of God operative in the midst of a rather judgmental situation. And there are two discoveries in Luke 13, 1 to 9 of God's grace that's operating in the midst of judgment. And so what are those discoveries? Well, in looking at the words of Jesus from Luke 13, 1 to 9, there's two discoveries I hope that you will see this morning. Number one, in the midst of judgment, God gives people space and grace to repent. And the second one is, in the midst of judgment, God gives his people space and grace to grow. So space and grace to repent space and grace to grow. Number one, God gives his people space and grace to repent. So just a little bit of background this morning. Is my mic dropping in and out really bad? No, okay, okay. All right, sorry. Um, my head's all stuffed up this morning and I'm even having trouble hearing myself. But um, if, before we get to Luke chapter 13, if you go back and read Luke 12, you'll find Jesus teaching his hearers and calling his hearers on the carpet about all sorts of things. He's challenging them about hypocrisy and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's calling people out about worldly materialism. Jesus talks to them about worry and faithlessness of his followers. He calls people out for who are seeking a life of ease. He talks about what's going to happen to people who are unprepared for the Lord's return. And he talks about people who don't know right from wrong, but apparently can seem to look outside and tell what the weather is going to be, just to name a few. And so when you get to chapter 13, 1, our text today, the crowd that's following him is listening to Jesus teach on these various topics and judgments, and they decide to approach Jesus with something like a, a case study, if you will, with loaded full of their own assumptions. So read with me verse, excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1. Again, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Okay, what is that about? What in the world is going on there? Well, to understand this, you've got to know a little bit about the history of what was taking place. See, the Galileans who lived north of Jerusalem, that'd be about 60 miles above Jerusalem, they were known for their hot-headedness. They were known for their absolute hatred of Roman rule. 
And then Pilate, who happened to be the Roman governor over Judea, which included the temple in Jerusalem, he was known for his brutality. And so you kind of got this explosive cocktail between the two beginning to happen. And scholars tell us that some Galileans one time came to worship in Jerusalem, and Pilate, fearing the Galileans would incite a riot in Jerusalem with their anti-Roman rhetoric, Pilate sends troops right into the temple to slaughter them. And he mixes the Galileans' blood with the blood of the sacrifices that day. And as a result, he defiles the temple of God. He defiles the people of God. And he tramples upon the people of God's religious sensibilities in the most abrupt ways. Essentially, it'd be like this. It'd be like if we were having a Christmas service here or or Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and ISIS came in and shot up the whole place. Things like that happen, it raises a lot of questions. No doubt these were the questions of some of these people coming to Jesus uh, in Luke 13, 1. Questions, all kinds of questions were in your mind. Questions about suffering. Who caused this? Whose fault was this? Did God will this? Did God allow it to happen? And so basically to paraphrase 13, 1, this group comes to Jesus and they say something kind of like this. They're like, Jesus, you know something? You're right. We've been with you for a while We've heard the stuff that you're calling out from chapter 12, and yeah, it's bad, and it needs to be judged. And yeah, Jesus, it kind of like, but we got a question. That time when Pilate slaughtered that bunch of hot-headed Galileans over in the temple, that was judgment on their heads, right? They obviously did something or committed some of the sins you've been talking about since a horrible judgment fell upon them, right? That's kind of what they're saying. And beloved, Jesus' response is surprising. Look with me in verse 13 too. He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Then he drops a truth bomb on them. He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And then to break it down a little farther and bring it a little closer to home with these folks, In 13.4, he brings up a very familiar natural disaster that took place in the area. Look at verse 4. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Then in verse 5, he says again, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Now, friends, listen, if the word judgment bothers you, Jesus' response this morning should really bother you. Repent or perish. Most of the time we would expect Jesus to respond in this situation with compassion, with empathy, or in some nice way, wouldn't we? I mean, imagine this. Imagine if you saw some terrible tragedy on the news and you come into the, to, to Christ church and you approach me or Father Ben or somebody here and like, hey, pastor, did you see that really bad thing that happened in the news? And rather than addressing that, just say, you know what? You repent or you likewise will perish. How shocking. What's going on here? It's kind of like this. Have you ever heard people talk about karma? I'm sure you have. Something, you know, something bad happens to someone and they respond, well, just better watch out for karma. I love this one. People who create their own drama deserve their own karma. (laughs) Sounds like Joel Olstein almost. (laughs) Or they say, well, what goes around comes around. Well, beloved, much in the same way, many in Jesus' day 
assumed that terrible misfortune was evidence of sin in someone's life. And so when bad things happened, they assumed people were just getting what they deserved. And so when Jesus says to them, doesn't even address it, and says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. He's skipping that and challenging all such assumptions and really pointing out that people being killed or not being killed is not necessarily a measure of someone's righteousness or unrighteousness. Jesus' point by doing this is essentially this. Anyone can be killed, but a problem occurs when we assume that those experiencing such disasters and death did something. And then God decided to just mash the smite button on them. Or the administer punishment button on them. Or how about the plague button on them? And here's the key. Get this. But God did not do so to others like those asking him questions in 13.1 because they were or are morally better or more righteous than those who died or experienced the tragedy. So when Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish, he's leveling their assumptions. And he's implying this, those people died, yes. And so will you. The world has fallen. All have sinned, all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All in Adam will die. And therefore, everyone needs to repent. And so with that, Jesus cuts his interlocutors water off to a drip. Repent or perish. And beloved, here's the leap. You know, it really is the same for you and I today. All of us are called to repent. That begs a few questions then. What does it mean to repent? I mean, here we are the third Sunday in Lent. We're about halfway through the season of Lent. What does it mean to repent? That's part of Lent generally. Well, here's the definition of repent. To repent means to change one's life or one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. He said another way, to repent is a change not just in thought but also behavior. As one man put it, uh, a commentator read this, or uh, one commentator that I read this week put it, he says if sin means to miss the mark, then repentance means to do whatever necessary to get back on target. I kind of like that. I can remember that. Okay, so that's repent. What about perish? Well, the word that Luke uses for this, it means literally to destroy utterly, to kill, to bring, I like this, to naught, N-O-U-G-H-T. To make void, to lose, be deprived of, destroyed, to be put to death, to die. So repent or die is essentially what Jesus is saying. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds extremely, scathingly judgmental. (laughs) It even sounds offensive. And it is offensive to our pride and our selfishness. And the greater our pride and selfishness, the greater resistance we're going to feel when God calls us to repent. Because, beloved, pride makes us blind to our sin. To be honest about it, we're all a bit like those in 13.1. And that we're pretty good at seeing the sin and the problems in the past of others that led to destruction. But, man, we don't like it when we're told that we're missing the mark. We don't like hearing that our lives are out of step with God's will. We don't like hearing that we need to get back on target because, well, (laughs) that means we're not on target. 
We tend to like a, 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 a graceful God who accepts us as we are, but then really just kind of leaves us alone in our sin. Which, by the way, is not the God of the Bible. As Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. We tend to not like the God who calls, to us, calls us out and says, hey, you know what? That thing in your life you don't want to talk to me about, yeah, I love you enough to tell you that you're missing the mark there, and if you don't change, it's going to kill you. Spiritually, maybe even physically, you need to repent. So how do we repent? How do we repent? Well, to repent means to get back on target by changing our mind about whatever it is that's in our lives that's wrong, agreeing that it's wrong, accepting what is right in God's eyes, and then changing our behavior. And friends, we hate feeling guilty. If we're honest about it, none of us like to feel guilty. We don't like being told no. We don't like God challenging us because oftentimes it leaves us feeling shame or shamed or remorse. And often we'll go to great lengths to avoid such things, to make those sorts of things stop. We'll stop going to church. We'll stop reading our Bible. We'll stop hanging out with people who hold us accountable or kind of hold those things up to us. But friends, listen this morning. Beloved, guilt is sometimes really the beginning of repentance. It's the beginning of turning away from sin and turning to God. And listen, true repentance does not end in guilt and shame but it ends in thankfulness to God for loving us enough to tell us his heart about what we are doing and then giving us the space and the grace to repent. See, God calling us to repent, to turn from sin and turn back to him, friends, is a very grace-centered, loving act of God. So why do we hate it so bad? Why does that word stir up so many negative connotations? Well, perhaps this quote from Tim Keller, our father who art in Manhattan, will help. He said this. He says, legalistic remorse says, I broke God's rules. While true repentance says, I broke God's heart. Do you see the difference? There's a huge difference between having a perspective of a God who merely hands down rules and is upset with us because we broke his rules, and we fear that he's going to mash the smite button on us at any time. There's a big difference between that God and a God who loves us with an unfathomable love, so much so that when we sin, his heart is broken. In fact, broken so much, he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And as Corinthians tells us, and according to the scriptures, was buried and rose again, thereby conquering sin, death, and hell on our behalf. And so by way of application, I have two questions for you this morning. Is your God, number one, is your God a God of rules, policy, and procedures? Who's waiting to smite you, to shame you, and humiliate you? Or is your, or is your God the God of the Bible, who reveals to you his love and his heart for you, what is best for you, who calls you in a loving way to repent and gives you second chances. Which is it? Friends, if you go back to Genesis in the early narrative 
of the people of God. Genesis 2 and 3. Right before sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, God told them that if they disobeyed him, they would surely die. Now, he did not say, if y'all disobey me, if you screw up just this once, I'm going to kill you. No, he said, listen again, you shall surely die. It's a simple statement of fact. In other words, God was telling them that to commit sin is to choose to cut oneself off from or to live apart from dependence on God. To disobey God is to choose to live a life apart from a relationship with God. And for them to choose to sin was really to choose death by their own choice as God, who is the source of all life. And so to do so, to live apart from him, is to cut themselves off from that life source. Hence, they die. What happened? They disobeyed God, and they hid. But sometimes one thing that gets overlooked in the details of that passage. You know, God comes looking to them, looking for them in the garden. And he's not calling, where are you? Like we do when our dog is lost outside. <laughs> in frustration, it's, where are you? He loves them. He pursues them early on. God never stops pursuing us. So, beloved, when God calls us to repent or perish, it too is like that. It's a statement of fact. Repentance is not about punishment, but it's actually an act of God's love and mercy It's a second chance to come back to the true source of true life and true love. Being called to repent is an opportunity to turn back to God and his love with gratitude and thankfulness. It's not a bad thing. So first, God's grace gives us, excuse me, God gives us space and grace to repent in life. But secondly, God gives his people space and grace to grow. And that was for sake of time, we won't read them. You can read them on your own later on. But in verses, I'll just summarize for you. In verses six to nine, Jesus goes from this really just, you know, these harsh statements to all of a sudden talking about fig trees. (laughs) Seems kind of almost like he skipped something there. But there's a couple things you need to know about a fig tree for it all to make sense. First, number one, it takes about three years after being planted for a fig tree to start bearing fruit. So in other words, it takes some time. If you're going to raise figs, you know, it's not a go plant, go to Lowe's, buy the thing, and it sprouts up, and you've got fruit this summer. You plant it in the spring, and you're going to have to wait three years before you see anything on it. So there's a time from there. But second, a fig tree is often used in the Bible as a symbol for God's people, most often Israel, the covenant people of God. And so in the parable, the owner of the fig tree, that's God the Father, comes looking for fruit on the fig tree, God's people, and he finds none. So he tells the vine dresser, Jesus, To cut it down because the fruitless tree is wasting valuable soil and nutrients. I love this. The vine dresser says, but wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Let's fertilize it. Let's wait another season. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, then cut it down. So here are the symbols really in the parable. God's people Israel the fig tree. And again, they're not producing any fruit in the kingdom of God. In fact, at this particular time, they're rejecting Messiah. They're going to reject Messiah. Jesus knows that. God knows that. And because of their lack of fruit in their lives, they were about to be cut down. 
And the vine dresser, Jesus says, wait, let's wait another season. Let's fertilize this thing. And then if it does nothing, we'll cut it down. What's the point of the parable? Listen, not only does God in his grace and love cause people to repent and turn back to him, but he also calls them to bear fruit in his kingdom. But if fruit does not show up in one's life, one is liable to judgment. But as we see in the parable, thanks be to God, Jesus comes to intercede for us, giving us space and grace, not only to repent, but grow and bear fruit in his kingdom and grow in him. And friends, this should give us hope and joy. Jesus doesn't leave us where he finds us. God is merciful and patient and offers hope in that we can grow and change in life. And that's something that the world really doesn't have the ability to do out here. And part of the way we grow and change is by fertilizing our lives. Or as the parable put it, put some spiritual manure on it. Spiritual manure in this case being discipleship and disciplines. And beloved, we do that in numerous ways here at Christ Church. There are sermons where we preach. There's probably a time or two people probably accuse us of putting some manure on things, imagine. But I <laughs> hope not. Somebody laughed. Um, but we do that in numerous ways here at Christ Church. There are sermons where we preach and we teach and we encourage and we admonish and exhort people to change, to grow more into Christ. We fertilize people, we hope, through life groups where people do life together and grow in their knowledge and relationship with Jesus and begin to change over a course of time and see a lot of things in their life begin to heal. We do this through, foundations, through the foundations classes. We do this for our kids through catechesis of the Good Shepherd to hopefully see them grow and begin to own their, their, their faith in Christ. We do that through the women's ministry and prayer ministry and all the servant teams here. And we even do that by like planting new parishes just like Church of the Good Shepherd and hopefully Lewis will perish soon out. And friends, we do these things not because we want to grow bigger vineyards or, or, or have a bigger orchard. Oh, I don't know what, I guess I don't know what figs grow in really, but uh, I guess it's an orchard, I'm not sure. But we do that not because we want bigger churches or bigger buildings or bigger hang groups of hangers-ons or followers or the like. Beloved, we do it because we love God and his kingdom and his son, Jesus Christ. And we want to see the kingdom grow. And we desire to see people experiencing the same fruit of God in their lives that we have experienced growing in our lives. Some of you ex have experienced that here. But you've only experienced that because you first repented, turned back to God, and then found a space and grace to grow. And beloved, that's exactly what we desire to see in the world and the greater world. The fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, blossoming up, if you will, in people's lives. So friends, this morning, if you're not involved in some of these things, put some spiritual manure on your life. Pray that God would begin to grow and raise you up to be a plant in his kingdom which would grow much fruit. Well, beloved, God gives us space and grace to repent and he gives us space and grace to grow. But sometimes I do think we take this for granted. We're just kind of like, yep, got that. We take it for granted. We shouldn't. Why? Look down at verse nine. Verse nine, the last verse. Jesus says, and if it bears fruit the next year, fine. But if not, Cut it down. 
Beloved, listen to me closely. The space and grace to repent and grow does not last forever. It has a shelf life. Do not take it for granted. As we say in the creed, Christ will come back to judge the quick and the dead. See, the judgment of God does serve as bookends to Luke 13, 1 to 9. Before Luke 13, 1 to 9, and then after Luke 13, 1 to 9. But friends, right now we live in the midst of Luke 13, 1 to 9, where God allows us to repent and grow before a day of judgment comes when Christ returns to put the world to rights. My question for you this morning, or two, actually two questions. One, what do you need to repent of today? And where do you need to turn back to God? And two, where is God calling you to grow more into the way, more into who he wants you to be? Where is God calling you to grow more into who he wants you to be? Brothers and sisters, let us desire to repent. Let us desire to grow Christ. And may Christ in his Holy Spirit strengthen us to do both the rest of this Lent season. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.